0: All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Again, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And Lord, we're so thankful that you give us uh, so much richness in your word. Lord, sometimes there's uh, historical lessons and sometimes there's prophetic lessons and sometimes there's just straight up practical lessons. And so, Lord, we're thankful for those and we're thankful... uh, for the privilege of to read those today, and uh, we pray, Lord, that as your word goes forth, your word would supernaturally go into our hearts and cultivate um, fruit that would bring glory and honor to you, and Lord, only you can do all of that, and so we ask that we would just be faithful, we would be uh, obedient, um, we'd be diligent, but we ask that you would do the work. And so have your way with us now, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We've been talking the last couple weeks. Um, if you haven't been here the last couple weeks, um, I'll just overview it briefly. You know James is a book that's kind of interesting and the reality is as Christians now I don't know the heart of everybody in the room but I'm just gonna tell you I'm talking to Christians primarily um, in this juncture of the of the scripture and as Christians we all have different personalities, we all have different backgrounds, we all have different sort of flavors of our Christian experience, our Christian lives, and uh, I've mentioned the last couple weeks, you know, when I was, I remember when I was young, I, I grew up, I, I believe I had a genuine conversion experience at 10 years of age, and then in my youth, I uh, I really just wanted to have more fun as I defined that than as the Lord defined that. And uh, so a very um, sort of unstable time in my life. And then long story short, uh, truthfully, uh, my mom sent me to college with a Bible. And I remember starting to read the book of Ephesians, maybe for the first time sincerely in a long time. And I remember thinking, Wow, this is a different Christian life than what I was thinking, and uh, it was truly the Word of God that got a hold of my heart and changed my life but anyway in the last couple of weeks also, just as background we've we've talked about the parable of the sower okay i won't read it through the, in the interest of time, but Matthew chapter thirteen and elsewhere, Jesus talks about you know the, the word of God when the Word of God is 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 thrown out like a seed, right? And so, what I'm doing right now is I'm going to read the Word of God. I'm going to read the Scripture, the Bible, the inspired, inerrant Word of God, the the Word of God that is living and powerful and, and sharper than a two-edged sword, and able to discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. The Word of God that is given by inspiration. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God or the child of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what I'm reading. I'm not reading a great psychology book. I'm not reading a great history book, though they are, though it is. But I'm reading the Word of God. And so as the Word of God goes out, Jesus uses this brilliant parable. He says, you know... When seed gets thrown out, and this was, he was speaking this to an agrarian society that very much understood seed and soil and all that, he said the seed falls on four different kinds of soil. It falls first on hard soil, people, and that represents the heart of a person that just says, I don't want to hear it. Well, that person's pretty straightforward in their response. And if you've know, if you ever tried to share the Word of God with something that just, someone that just absolutely doesn't want to hear it, they absolutely don't want to hear it. There's another kind of person that receives it with joy, but they have no depth. They have no understanding of uh, the things of God. And so it just seems like a, an emotional thing, but it's very temporary. And then they fall away. And then there's a third group that receives it, but he it says the, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke out the fruitfulness of of that seed that's been planted. And then there's a fourth kind that's good soil, healthy soil, fertile soil that the seed germinates and it grows and it bears uh fruit and fruit that multiplies. And I'm always intrigued, the first group people say I don't want to hear it, would we as Christians if you're not if and if you don't have a big church background, can I just say I'm acknowledging that we have our Christian vocabulary, right? Maybe before you came to the Lord, you thought, you know, those people sort of have their own vocabulary, right? Do we have our own vocabulary? Yeah. So I'm going to fall into our own vocabulary for a minute, right? That first group, we're going to call them saved or lost? Lost. I don't have anything to do with it. The fourth group, seed grows, uh, bears fruit, fruit that multiplies the whole nine yards. We're going to call that group saved or lost? Saved. saved. The second group, the group that says, yeah, man, and then they shortly thereafter fall away, we're going to call that group saved or lost. All right, we'll try again. The third group, the group that, it sort of germinates, but the cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke out the word. We're going to call them saved or lost. Right? Right? And this is the subject of theologians' debates endlessly. What happens to those two middle groups, right? And so, again, I know this is laborious. This may be repetitive from the last two, verses, last two chapters, but I want us to all be on the same page. And I'll probably do this for the next two weeks. The point of the book of James is James almost ignores those second two groups, James is writing to Christians, so we know that he's not talking to the first group. All right, if you uh, were drugged here by somebody and you just don't want to have anything to do with anything I'm going to say, that's up to you, and that's how it's going to roll. Those second two groups, theologians debate all the time: whether those people are saved or lost. How many times have you heard a debate, or read a book, or heard a sermon, or whatever, 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 about can you lose your salvation? Now, here's my point. Here, here's really the relevant question. Why do you want to know? Well, because I'm thinking about, you know, I'm kind of approaching midlife. I'm thinking about getting a, you know, a new life. Just want to know if, uh, if my, you know, come to Jesus experience I had when I was 24 counts. Well, James would say, we're not talking to that guy, Right? And there's there's much of our Christian experience that really boils down to one of two things. We can live the Christian life A, you know, how can I be in control? Experience my fun the way I define it, set my goals and dreams and hopes and ambitions the way I define them and still squeak into heaven. That's one kind of person. The other kind of person is, Lord, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, you're a lot smarter than I am, you know what's best for me, you've given me your word, and you've given me your spirit who guides me into all truth, and I'm just going to follow you, I, gotta make, make a, I, I get that I've got to make a few decisions along the way, and I'm going to try to do it with as much wisdom as I can, but the reality is at the end of the day, I want you to be truly Lord of my life. And can I suggest to you that this kind of person exists. This kind of person is alive and well on earth today. Churches are full of these people. But James seems to not really give much attention to those people. James is written to the, the mature Christian, the person that wants to be mature, the person that wants to follow the Lord, the person that is looking for wisdom beyond himself to navigate life. Now, we're in church. Which do you think is the right answer? We want to be this guy or this guy? This guy, right? Everybody okay with that? Okay, so James is written to the person that wants to be mature. So James is, James is kind of raising the bar for us a little bit, frankly. So I kind of give you all that big, long intro to tell us that if James seems a little daunting, James, honestly, if, I, I forget where I read, I read somewhere, you know, if James doesn't sort of bust you in the chops at least once or twice, you're probably not being honest with yourself. You're probably not giving it an honest read, right? But if, but honestly, if you're the person that says, hey, how much can I kind of do my own thing and squeak into heaven? James is a, is a rough book. Okay. So I give all that warning. I'm going to move forward uh, with the idea that we want all we can get from the Lord. So, everybody ready? Did you all turn to James chapter 3 yet? All right. You guys are fast. He says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, Apparently some commentators say apparently in the in the the early church in the days that the folks that James was writing to there were a lot of people who sort of had this um sort of ambition in the church like they wanted positions of prominence they wanted positions that were sort of visible within the church and and honestly churches experience that and um you know human nature is largely unchanged but the reality is that you know, we have all we all have, as I've said many times before, if you're if you're visiting or if you're new, I've said many times before, we're all ministers. If you're a Christian, you're a minister, and you're a full-time minister. There's no distinction between you know whether or not you get your paycheck from a church or whether you get your paycheck from a uh, from a secular organization, right? Uh, we're all in full-time ministry, and we all need to see our lives as that way. Well, as such, we all kind of find ourselves in a teaching capacity in some form or another, oftentimes. And so, uh, you know, he says, just be careful. When you step into that role of a teacher, you're influencing other people. And when you influence other people, you need to make sure that you rightly represent God. You know, there, my favorite example, you recall uh, when Moses was leading the Israelites through the desert. Uh, There's a first mention of that they were thirsty and God said, uh, hey, just strike that rock and water's going to pour out of it because they were whining about not having enough water. And Moses struck the rock, water poured out. Well, then there's another time a little later on, well, a lot later on, that uh, they got thirsty again, they complained again. And God said to Moses, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses, many of you know the story, Moses struck the rock the second time, and God was not happy about that. And the reason God was not happy about that was, number one, Moses didn't pay attention. But as I read it, to me, the bigger thing was that Moses misrepresented God. Moses represented God as being angry at the fact that they were whining about water. And God wasn't necessarily angry. God wanted to take care of the people and God wanted to instruct the people and God instructed Moses accordingly and Moses didn't do that and as such Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land and you know I remember the first, first time I read that I thought that seems like a pretty, pretty harsh consequence for like striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock right? I've, anybody ever done anything like dumber than that like you're supposed to speak and you strike the rock right? I'd be guilty on that one Right? But the reality is Moses misrepresented God. God does not like to be misrepresented. And so if you step into a role of teacher, he says, let not many of you become teachers knowing that you shall receive a stricter judgment. God holds us accountable for the way in which we influence others, the way in which we might teach others. And specifically, I think it's very important that we represent God rightly according to the character of God that we see laid out in the scripture. Let me just mention also, uh, while we're here, this is not judgment for salvation. How are, we, how are we saved or lost, according to the scripture? By God's grace, right? Not by whether or not I'm a good teacher or not a good teacher, right? So we're not talking about salvation. But there is a, a, a principle in the scripture that uh, as we go to heaven, we're going to get uh, spiritual rewards. We're going to get uh, rewards in heaven. I don't understand how all that works. I'm going to let God worry about that. I'm just going to try to be faithful between here and there, right? But, but somehow, we're all given rewards in heaven according to what we've done on earth. That's a biblical principle. And so, I think, honestly, this, reference, this, is, this is most likely a uh, reference to that uh, because we're saved by grace. So, it's not about salvation. Verse 2, he goes on. He says, For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body. And so now this is a segue into uh, the tongue. I remember uh, years ago I was listening to a, a guy teach, and he said, you know, he, he said he was going through James. And I was thinking about doing this last week, but I, I wouldn't stoop to this level. He finished chapter 2 of James. And he said, all right, next week I want everybody to come back. I'm going to tell you about the biggest troublemaker in the church. Right? It was, a, it was a low trick, right? He was trying to get everybody to show up. And sure enough, everybody wanted to know who that guy was, right? I want to know who the biggest troublemaker in the church is. I'm going to be there on time. I'm going to, I'm going to be ready, right? Who's the biggest troublemaker in the church? The tongue, right? That's the punchline. Uh, so anyway, he says, we all stumble in many things. We all stumble in many things. This is, a, this is a, an appropriate segue for talking about, about our tongues. You know what? We all mess up. We all mess up. We all mess up. And you know, as, as we navigate relationships you know, Trace and I have a large family. We navigate relationships, right? Just between her and I, between us and our kids, between the kids and the kids, between the, you know, it can, there's, there's a lot of movement, right? And guess what? And, and one of the messages that, that we keep trying to anchor on for ourselves and, and those around us is, you know what? We all stumble in many ways. If you expect perfection from me, you will be sincerely disappointed. And if I expect perfection from you, I will be disappointed. And so we have opportunity to choose. Sometimes we have to make a choice a deliberate choice, but we have an opportunity to choose to be gracious with one another through their failings, through their fallings, through their stumblings, and we have an opportunity to sort of give and receive grace, right? I mean, isn't that the heart of God, to be gracious, right? And so we all stumble in many ways. We need to to practice being gracious to each other. And speaking of gracious, speaking of stumbling, Our tongue is probably a good thing to talk about. Fair enough? So when I gave that big, long introduction at the beginning about uh, we're talking about mature Christians, we're talking about mature Christians who have a grip on their tongue. You might call it a filter, right? Uh, And so we need to have a grip on our tongue. We said a couple weeks ago uh, that we should be, uh, from chapter one, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God God gave you two ears one mouth right the ears are open they're exposed to the elements right your tongue is got two gates in front of it your teeth and your lips right sometimes you have to bite down with your teeth just to make sure you don't say the wrong thing right right you can do either way if you want sometimes you do both sometimes I have to do both sometimes I should have done both Now, for the next, uh, up to verse 12, he's going to give us some uh, talk about the tongue. Now, I want to also acknowledge that, you know, in a body like this, the way uh, the Lord has put this body together, would we acknowledge that we come from lots of different church backgrounds or maybe even not a church background or this kind of church background or I grew up in this kind of church and, you know, all that? Would we acknowledge that? Is that okay? And some of you, in some of your church backgrounds, you kind of get a little homesick, right, for some of those, like, songs that we sang or, you know, so, so you get a little homesick, right? So I acknowledge you. So to those of you uh, who grew up on three-point alliteration, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock down a little three-point alliteration today. Is that okay? Because I got, th- candidly, I got this from Warren Weersby, who is from one of those churches, Okay. But I I love what he says. He's got a great commentary. But I think this this helps me um, kind of break this up a little bit. So from verse uh, 3 to verse 12, he talks about the tongue has the power to direct, verse 3 and 4, the power to destroy, verse 5 through 8, and the power to delight, verse 9 through 12. Now, if you're from one of those churches, you know who you are. But you just kind of got a warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside, didn't you? When I talk about the power to direct, the power to destroy, and the power to delight, you know who you are, right? right? But, okay, if you weren't from one of those, just roll with me for a minute. He says, Indeed, we put bits in horse's, bro- horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. So he gives us two examples now when he's talking about the power to direct. He's given us two examples, the bridle uh, for the horse and the rudder uh, for the ship. And these are both very good examples. They both, catch this now, they both direct something that is much bigger than themselves. Okay? You think about a horse. I mean, I don't like heights and I've seen way too many people with way too many casts on various limbs and way too many common threads that all go back to a horse, right? So I got a very healthy respect for horses, right? Even think about this. This is, I don't know, what's a horse weigh? 1,000 pounds? Huh? 1,200 pounds? 1,242 pounds. That horse... That horse is directed by a little piece of metal. Is that crazy? I mean, just think about that. It's a great example. That's crazy. A 1,200-pound horse is directed by a little piece of metal. A big ship is directed by a little rudder. It's a great example. In both of these examples, they have to overcome obstacles, right? Now I like the horse. You know the ship example. Uh, the rudder has to overcome, you know, the wind, maybe the waves, to direct the ship where it needs to go. The horse example. The horse. Need, the the bridle needs to overcome basically the will of a 1,200 pound animal. That's a strong force, if you will, to overcome. The, de- the horse may desire to go a different direction, but that bridle needs to overcome it. In order for our tongues to direct us in the right direction, I'll just stick with the horse example for now. In order for my tongue to direct me in the right direction in the same way the bridle directs the horse in the right direction, then in order for that to happen, my tongue needs to Be able to overcome my sin nature. Just like the bridle needs to overcome the horse's physical strength. My bridle of my tongue needs to overcome my sin nature. And I like the example. If you think about it, a guy riding a horse. There's three pieces: there's the guy riding the horse, there's the horse, and there's the bridle, right? Well, in a sense, who's driving the whole thing? The guy riding the horse. And he's doing it by means of the bridle which directs the horse itself. Right? Who needs to drive my tongue? The Holy Spirit. So in a sense, just like the rider and the bridle and the horse itself, uh, the physical horse, there's the Holy Spirit that should be directing me. It should manifest through my mouth and my mouth should direct where I go. Right? just like the horse. Same with the ship captain. The captain moves the rudder, right? Directs the ship. Jesus said out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Matthew 12:34. So if the Holy Spirit controls my heart, and out of the heart the mouth speaks, then what comes out of my mouth should be consistent with my life, which should be consistent with the working of the Holy Spirit. So the tongue is a vital part of the Holy Spirit-driven life moving toward Christian maturity. It's also a litmus test of how far I need to go, right? Can I tell us this, honestly? What comes out of our mouth really, really matters, and I'm preaching to myself. What comes out of our mouth really, really matters, And let me elaborate also to say what is said and how it's said, right? What is said and how it's said. We all have experiences where somebody might, what they say and how they say it are not consistent. But what is said and how it's said must be under the lordship of the Holy Spirit. And we can save ourselves a lot lot of consequence, a lot of drama, uh, if we would uh, adhere to that. But again, that's that's not for the faint of heart. Verse 5, he goes on, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. He says, see how great a forest fire, uh, see how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it, is set, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So in the same way we said the tongue can direct the person, right, verses 3 and 4, The tongue also has the power to destroy. And the tongue can cause great destruction. Verse 5 and 6, I like this example. It's like a fire, right? If I light a match right here, let's say I'm in a forest, and I light a match right here, or throw my cigarette down, or whatever like that, and it catches fire, where all does the fire go? everywhere everywhere so i'm no longer just worried about causing damage here right you've ever been guilty of this besides me right you understand what i'm talking about i can explain it if you want right my wife can explain to you what i'm talking about right because i've done it a bazillion times right you you something comes out of your mouth that's destructive or maybe, the, again, either the what or the how, either really doesn't matter. But it, it's destructive. And so, you, in your mind even, sometimes you calculate this. And let me just tell you this about sin. If you've been here for any period of time, you know that I always rant on this. Uh, but it's, but it's, I think it's a biblical truth. Sin always, always has consequences beyond what we can anticipate. And I don't care what the sin is, but if I'm, if I'm trying to have some kind of evaluation of like, should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, I always, always underestimate the consequences of what happens if I do this thing, right? Eve thought, I'll eat this fruit, right, and... You know, did she anticipate that a curse would be brought on all of humankind, which would require the Son of God to be killed on a cross? you think she envisioned that while she's contemplating whether or not to eat that fruit? I don't think so. And so, you know, very oftentimes, uh, you know, maybe you're, you're... saying something destructive and maybe you're, maybe you're intending to, maybe you're just you know again it's, maybe it's just unbridled and it just comes out but the damage always goes beyond what you're going to anticipate the damage goes beyond what you're going to anticipate just like a fire so again biblical truth, biblical example that really, really cl- I think very clearly explains a biblical truth and that is The consequences of a destructive tongue are huge. Proverbs 26, verse 20 to 21 says, where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And where there's no tailbearer, strife ceases. Isn't that the truth? Somebody gossips to you or tells something totally destructive, right? They're hoping you're going to tell somebody else and the fire will keep going. If you just choose not to tell anybody else, It's kind of like not throwing wood on the fire. Where there's no tailbearer, the strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood is to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. So it's hard to fix the damage of that fire. On the other hand, we 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 can cause a fire that just keeps going or we can choose to not fuel the fire. And with our tongues, we have great opportunity to stop fueling the fire. Sometimes, sometimes the smartest thing we can do, sometimes the wisest thing we can say in a given situation is nothing. Saying nothing is one of the choices that we have, right? I can either say something, you know, or I can say nothing. Saying nothing is often one of the options. And it's often the, probably the most underrated option. You know, he goes on with the example. Uh, you know, it's like, a, it's like a fire out of control. It's also like a, an untamed animal, right? An untamed animal is, it can be destructive. Think about the 1,200-pound horse that's not tamed. That horse is scary. So is a tongue that lacks the control of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can tame the tongue. Notice here he says, no man can tame the tongue. Please catch that. No man can tame the tongue. Now, the way I read scripture, either it's true or it's false. And oftentimes, we see these absolute statements in the Scripture. And we have to deal with them, right? And sometimes we, you know, we can interpret them one way or another. But, you know, a a sentence like that is a little bit tough. No man can tame the tongue. What does that tell me? That tells me that the Holy Spirit can tame the tongue, but I can't tame my own tongue. I cannot tame my own sin nature. I can't, like try to calculate and evaluate and make sure I say the right thing at the right time in and of my own strength and my own wisdom, my own intellect. No man can tame the tongue, but the Holy Spirit can. And so, again, we need to be um, very surrendered to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 9. He says, with it, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, and, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. And so this, you know, we said there's the power to, the tongue has the power to direct, the tongue has the power to destroy, the tongue has the power to delight. With it we can bless God. With it, we can bless God. We can worship God. We can encourage our brethren. We can edify one another. There's lots of scripture that tells us how we should talk to one another and how we should communicate in a way that brings encouragement. And so he's given us this example of sort of a natural water spring or a fruitful tree. And the reality is we should be consistent. If if our tongues are like a spring of fresh water, he says, you know, no, no natural spring bears both fresh water and bad water or, sal- or salty water, right? And so our tongues should be, again, yielding to the Holy Spirit. They should bring encouragement, and they should bring it consistently, a tree bears one kind of fruit, whether it's a fig or an olive, it's just, it should just bring, bring one, one kind of fruit. And our tongues, our mouths, our words should bear witness of the Holy Spirit consistently. Again, that's a challenge for those of us that want to walk forward in maturity as believers. We have the capacity with our tongues to give life and, and encouragement, spiritual nutrition to others. Proverbs 16.24 says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. Proverbs 18.21, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And as I'm just reading those, as it reminds me, let me just encourage you in this way. If you read these verses and you're like, man, you know, my tongue, it honestly needs a little help. Again, I've said, you know, reading the book of James, Is a challenge for us, but it's also kind of maybe a moment for an opportunity for some uh, contemplation, some self-evaluation, okay? And if you find yourself ever like, man, I need to like, maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting you. You know, I need to work on my filter a little bit, right? Now, no man can tame the tongue, but the Holy Spirit can, right? Can I give you some, just a very practical tip? Read the book of Proverbs, read the book of Proverbs. There's 31 chapters in Proverbs, right? Read one a day for a month. Not February, but you know what I mean, March. Right? Read one a day for a month. Then go back and read it over. Just, you know, take you three minutes out of your morning routine, right? Read a proverb a day. There is such... Richness there, such very practical richness about how to communicate with others, how to live in community as believers, how to have the right understanding of who God is. There's just such very practical richness in there, but particularly as it relates to the tongue, there's a lot in Proverbs. So he transitions now from. From that, talks talks a little bit about wisdom. So the rest of this chapter talks about wisdom. He goes on, verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by, by good conduct that, has his, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So again, if we're going to be mature Christians, if we want to be the fourth kind of soil that bears fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, we need to understand wisdom. And, you know, as he goes on here, he's going to explain to us, there's sort of a worldly wisdom. There's the kind of wisdom that makes people say, wow, you're smart. And there's also godly wisdom. And godly wisdom is really what we want to seek. We want wisdom to come out of our lives. And in the context of this chapter, it's going to come very often through our tongues. Notice he says here, godly wisdom manifests as good conduct done in meekness meekness now we hear that term meekness it's a it's it's one of those christian terms right think of that as strength under control right like the example of the horse when the horse is tamed the horse has tremendous strength but it's all under control that would be meekness right And meekness is not the same, some people confuse meekness with weakness, right? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is like self-control, strength under control. And, you know, a person that manifests wisdom, (coughs) he says, who's wise and understanding? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. That word meekness is important. If you have godly wisdom, it should just come out of your life. If you have godly wisdom, you shouldn't have to sell it to anybody. Hear me now on this. If you have godly wisdom and manifest godly wisdom in your life, you shouldn't have to sell it to anybody. Frankly, self-promotion Is not from God. Now, do we like to promote ourselves? Okay, yes, we do. Right? Do I want you to think I'm awesome? Like, apart from whether or not I'm awesome or not, we all want people to think we're awesome. And we need to resist the temptation to self-promote. So, he said, who's wise? Just show it by good conduct with works that are done in the meekness of wisdom. That's a great, great description. If you have godly wisdom, you shouldn't have to sell it to others. Verse 14. But... If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not pr- descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Well, that's pretty strong, right? So there is a type of wisdom that he's acknowledging that's not from above. He said there's, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. He calls it a type of wisdom. It's a type of wisdom that's full of envy and self-seeking. We don't, want to be, we, don't, we don't want to be that, right? Wisdom that's associated with uh, hearts full of bitter envy and self-seeking. And if you think about it like this, bitter envy and self-seeking, right? If I'm trying to push myself forward, if I'm trying to, maybe I'm trying to think of maybe a football analogy, right? Let's say I'm trying to push through. I'm doing two things. I want to I wanna get rid of anybody that's in my way, right? That's like envy. I want to minimize you or take what you have and I want to promote myself, that's self-seeking. So envy and self-seeking, right? That's self-promotion. That does not come from the Lord. That comes from self. That comes from uh, the world. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. It's earthly in that it's, it's worldly. The world thinks that's awesome. If I'm like... Uh, if I'm some like life coach or self-help psychologist or something like that and I say you know what you need to do you need to push away the the opposition push away the barriers and promote yourself and stand up on your own two feet and declare who you are and have a good self-esteem and make sure everybody knows about it right if I did that in a secular sense, if I did that for some kind of positive thinking seminar, they'd say, that's awesome. They'd say, follow your heart, man, right? But that's, that's worldly. It's also sensual. It's like sensual in that it's satisfying who I want to be myself. It's also demonic, right? Because it, it fights against what God wants to do in our lives. What does God want us to be? Humble. Meek. Does he want us to be wimps? No. He wants us to be humble, meek servants of his who live and manifest with godly wisdom in meekness. He says, don't don't do the wisdom that's full of envy and self-seeking. He says, that doesn't come from God. He goes on, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Remember I said, if we're evaluating sin, like if we're going to evaluate what, whether or not you know, sin with our, with our tongues... We underestimate the magnitude of the consequence of the sin. The same thing happens with envy and self-seeking. Notice this. If I'm full of envy and self-seeking, then wherever I go, there's confusion and there's every evil thing. So it's like when I'm I'm full of envy and self-seeking, it's like I'm bringing in more confusion. I'm bringing in more evil from other sources. And that often plays itself out. If we're all about just serving ourselves, if we're all about just, I wanna, I wanna be the first guy in line, and I'm gonna knock you over to get there, then I'm gonna cause other damage. And honestly, we see it all the time. But notice this, if you ever wanna memorize a verse, here you go, James 3, 17. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure. Then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Isn't that rich? You know, in James chapter one, God told us that if anybody lacks wisdom, we should ask for it. He said, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it to all who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we're, the wisdom that we ask God for, if we lack wisdom, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. I mean, we all, have, we all face that question. God, I don't know what to do in this situation, right? God, God brings us into situations that require wisdom, that require us to seek him. So if, I don't, if I'm looking for what to do in this situation, God, give me wisdom, then I want godly wisdom. I don't want man's wisdom, I don't want self-promotion wisdom. I don't want envy and self-seeking wisdom. I want God's wisdom. And God would give us really the answers to the test. Hey, you want to know what godly wisdom looks like? Here's how you know you got godly wisdom. And again, this is not for the faint of heart. Godly wisdom manifests, first of all, pure. What does pure mean? It means my motives are pure. My motives are pure. I don't have some kind of hidden agenda. My motives are pure if I'm living with godly wisdom. And then peaceable. I'm not trying to always pick a fight. Now, do sometimes we have to stand? Ephesians chapter 6, we're in spiritual warfare, right? Do we have to take a stand against the schemes of the devil? Absolutely. But our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? We need to remember that. Sometimes, well, I'll just say it. We live in a world that's always trying to pick a fight in some arena. I think we have tremendous opportunity as Christians. We have tremendous, hear me now on this. We have tremendous opportunity as Christians in this day and age to live firmly but peaceably. And the Christian who's always trying to pick a fight is probably the one that gets quoted in the news. That's okay. Let's just not be that person. The wisdom is from above is first pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. See, if I know that God is giving me wisdom, and if I'm surrendered to God then I don't have to force my own way. I can be gentle about it. Because gentleness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Willing to yield. You know, there's sometimes that you could exercise your rights. I, I, can, I can have that thing just as much as he can. Is that true? Parents, you get, ever find yourself in this situation? You know, person A wants this and person B wants this. Person A has just as much right as person B. You know what person B says? Super creative. Well, I have as much right as person A, right? And what do you got? You got nothing but a volleyball game going on, right? You know what speaks Powerfully. If you ever find yourself in a difficult situation, if you ever have, I mean, sometimes we need to stand on conviction. I'm not taking anything away from that. There's a difference between standing on conviction and picking a fight or demanding my own way. And if I ever have opportunity to be willing to yield, that speaks so powerfully And please hear me on this. On the other hand, if I demand my own way, very often I'll get it. I win the battle and I lose the war. I get the thing and I lose the relationship or I harm the relationship or I strain the relationship, which is infinitely more important than the thing, right? Is James practical? James is practical. James is super practical. Wisdom from above is first pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy. What's mercy? Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Back in the day, years ago, when we were raising kids, we're still raising kids. But back in the early days when we thought we had it all figured out, now we know we don't. It's a whole other story. Back in the day when we had it all figured out, we were a little more direct than we are now. My kids would say something. Uh, one word that kind of just caused dad to twitch a little bit was deserve. Right? Parents? your kids deserve something? Right? makes me twitch. gives me a little seizure. Right? They deserve something. Really. And they could all recite it to you in, unis- in a beautifully unified chorus. You know what you deserve? You deserve eternity in hell. Anything better than that is a bonus. Right? Now I'm much more gracious now than I used to be, except for the fact that I just quoted that. <laughs> we all deserve eternity in hell. Anything better than that is a bonus. That's mercy. I'm not going to hell. That's mercy. Grace, it's like, are you kidding? It gets even better. Grace is I don't deserve to go to heaven, but I get to go there. Mercy and grace. You know what the wisdom is from above is? It's first pure, then peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits. If I'm walking in godly wisdom, I'm not quite so, I mean, sometimes we have to, as parents, let's say, for example, you have to train your children. I'm not talking necessarily about that. I'm talking about just people interacting with one another. Sometimes I need to extend forgiveness, I got to tell you, my wife is good at this. My wife is good at this. Are you guys having as much fun as those kids are? <laughs> Your brains are all there, so I might as well just call it out, <laughs> right? My wife is is amazing at extending mercy. To me, if to nobody else. And I can tell you this: there are so many times that she has every right to bust me for doing something stupid or saying something stupid, or uh, guys, you know what I'm talking about. Now we're talking. Amen. And she told uh, catch this now, so I'll say this, ladies, or anybody. She has every right to bust me on that thing. And when she chooses not to, what do you think that does, guys? Makes me say, cool, got away with it. To do that? No. It endears me like nothing else. Like nothing else. So that's husband and wife. And that relationship is unique. I'll give you that. But I think in daily life, if we ever have those opportunities. Remember we all stumble in many ways. Not just everybody but you. But we all stumble in many ways. Right? So we are going to have opportunities, praise the Lord, to extend mercy to somebody else. And when we do that, we have such an opportunity before us to bond a relationship, to heal a relationship, to edify one another within the body of Christ, to build one another up. We have tremendous opportunity for that. Wisdom is from above. It's pure, peaceable gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. We read that last week, you know, partiality should have no part of what we do, right? Partiality is what I do when I want to show uh, special treatment to somebody else. And, and almost by definition, if I'm showing special treatment to somebody else, it's so I can get something in return. So if my motives are pure, If I'm peaceable, if I'm gentle, if I'm willing to yield, if I'm full of mercy and and good fruits, then I'm definitely not going to have any partiality or hypocrisy. Right? This is the wisdom that comes from above. Only God can do all this in our lives, honestly. None of us. I think we'd all, if we're honest with ourselves, none of us can produce that in our own lives. I can't wipe out all the, all the impure motives in my life. I can't always be peaceable and not, you know, get a little unpeaceful once in a while, ungentle once in a while, willing to yield. Sometimes I've got to demand my own way, my rights, right? Full of mercy. Well, they deserve what they got, right? Without partiality, without hypocrisy. I can't in myself do that. Only God can do that in my life. Only God can do that in your life. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so when we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, again, kind of wrapping up this chapter, when we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, our words speak peace, our words edify one another, our, our words don't cause destruction, our words bear fruit. The wisdom that comes out of our lives Bears forth the fruit of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace, and that should be us. That should totally be us. So, you know, here's the thing. We've been given a stewardship of this life. God has placed you on planet Earth in such and such a context. As he told uh, Esther, for such a time as this, God chose to put you in this place, in this context of history for a purpose, a divine purpose, a supernatural purpose. And guess what? That purpose is not just for you to have fun and accumulate toys. And we all know that. It's not just for you to demand your own way. It's not just for you to get to the first in line. It's for you to accomplish a divine purpose to bless others, to worship God, and that his kingdom would be built up here on earth, right? I mean, we don't bring in the kingdom and all that. God does all that (laughs) work, right? That's a whole other story. But we have an opportunity to love God and to love others, which is basically what he said, right? Love God, and the second commandment is like it, love your neighbors yourself. We do that with a Holy Spirit-directed life that affects what we say, affects the wisdom that comes out of our lives, affects how we interact with one another, and God gets the glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for your spirit who guides us into all truth. Lord, we know that as we read a chapter like this honestly, we know that, as Paul said, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. We know that we cannot really tame our own tongues. We know that we really cannot in and of ourselves, generate the kind of wisdom that you describe here in verse 17. We know that we're completely dependent upon you for all of that. And so, Lord, we thank you that you supply all that, that you give us, as Peter said, all that pertains to life and godliness. So, Lord, help us to walk in that. faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.